In this shortcast, Dr. Lydia Healy, Maeve O'Shea, and Dr. Ahmad Manavari discuss their work, glutaric acid urea type 1, diagnosis, clinical features, and long-term outcome in a large cohort of 34 Irish patients, published in June 2022. So I first became interested in GI1 when I was doing my six-month rotation in the Centre for Inherited Metabolic Diseases, which was part of my basic paediatric training here in Ireland. I was fascinated by the condition and I saw a lot of patients with GA1 in the clinics. As anybody listening will know, GA1 is an organic aciduria caused by deficiency of glucose dehydrogenase and results in the accumulation of toxic substrates. The spectrum of presentations I was seeing among the patients was so broad, especially in comparison to the other protein disorders in the clinics. And, and patients did have this very unusual uh, range of clinical features. Just recently before, newborn screening for GA1 had been introduced in Ireland, so it was very topical. And I, I spoke to Prof. Monavari and he suggested reviewing all the outcomes of Irish patients with GA1 so that we could show the positive effect of screening and also that we could detail some of these uh, unusual clinical features that we had in our patient population. And that's what led us to perform this retrospective observational study that actually spans 37 years and 34 patients here in Ireland. When I came here first, I was fascinated with the GA1. Most of the classical one was this kinetic CP. And then when there is a newborn being diagnosed by GA1, they have a better outcome. But it was difficult at the beginning to diagnose them because the majority of them came through general peds and neurologists with this kinetic CP and no diagnosis. And the facilities in Ireland at that stage wasn't up to date for to do organic acid. It used to have to send it abroad and it used to take us about six months and more to have a result. Also, we didn't have a cell quarantine uh, profiled here or in any place we can send it to Europe. So we use a tandem mass in the state at that stage and it would take us six months to a year to have a result. So from the diagnosis, it was difficult at the beginning. The second thing also after that was the management of it. So there was a long admission because we didn't know how to manage it very well. But my predecessor was trying to manage it like the same uh, severe other condition of amino acidopathy like maple syrup. And she was successful with that, giving them carnitine diet. And that changes also over time. At the beginning, the diet was tryptophan and glycine free. But then when some side effects happened by the deficiency of tryptophan, so become now low tryptophan at the moment and also with uh, arginine enhanced. And the majority of the clinically presented was dyskinetic CP, while the high screen were developing better at that stage. Now things change. Uh, we can do the urinary acid here in, in the lab have it in a few hours, the same with acyl quarantine. Before to confirm the diagnosis, we used to do skin biopsy, try to find uh, the level of the enzyme, and it will take also a few weeks to a few months until the results come back. Now we can do also genetic mutation analysis, and that helps us to quickly diagnose that. So I have seen different in the diagnosis, the treatment, and the outcomes. So maybe probably you can go through some of the outcomes that we have seen Yes, absolutely. 16 patients in our cohort were diagnosed clinically, one by newborn screening and 17 by high-risk screening. We looked at how they were doing at five years of age or at school attending age, their motor function, and if they attended mainstream or special school as a proxy for measuring intellectual function. We also followed them to see if they were alive or deceased, and if so, at what age. Of those who presented clinically, nine presented with metabolic crisis, four due to motor delay and three with insidious dystonia. We found that seven patients had passed away by school age. Two of these were in the high-risk screening group. Of these two, one passed away as a neonate due to sepsis 
However, the exact contribution of GA1 to the cause of death is unknown. The other deceased high-risk screening patient passed away at four years of age following a respiratory infection and a failure to expedite the emergency protocol. In the clinically presenting group, an additional two patients passed away after seven years of age, one patient was lost to follow-up in adulthood and the remaining patients are all alive. Two-thirds of the clinically diagnosed group who survived to school age had significant cerebral palsy and dystonia by school age, compared to none of those diagnosed by high-risk screening. Patients who presented clinically were also less likely to be in mainstream school versus high-risk screening. So we know now that of 27 of our 34 patients, we have their genetic variations. When we start looking after them, there was no genetic diagnosis at stage. In the mid to the late 90s, it came and we start trying to do it locally here. And we find our uh, first mutation here through the SSCP mutation analysis. And we find it is the um, most common one that we have it here is a C1098, which is a E365K. But then after that, we send it to different uh, labs and we find that more than 50% of our patients have this mutation. So that makes it fascinating for us. So probably, Lydia, you can get through some of the clinical events that we have seen in the older patient here with GA1. We noticed what we've termed in our article, uh, unusual clinical events or clinical phenomena occurring in our patient population. And, and often these happened after six years of age, which is often the accepted ceiling age-wise for the traditional complications of GA1. One interesting case was a, a man with spastic diplegia. Uh, he actually began to develop these symptoms um, when he was around eight years old. It began with kind of unsteadiness and increased tone in his legs. And the symptoms started after a period of very erratic protein intake when he was in and out of hospital a lot with intercurrent infections. And things got worse until he was 12 when his infections and his protein management actually stabilized. He was extensively investigated, seen by his neurologist who's a specialist in muscle disorders and no other cause for this spastic diplegia picture was found and everything stabilized and he's, he's now doing well, still ambulant. This man had been diagnosed by high-risk screen and he had MRI findings typical uh, of GA1. Another interesting event we saw in our population was two patients uh, developing carry one malformations. Both these patients, again, were d- diagnosed by high-risk screen. The first man, again, from around six years of age, there was concerns about his, his adherence to the prescribed treatment regimen, but he wouldn't have been in and out of hospital very frequently. He also had growth hormone deficiency diagnosed when he was 11. And then he had routine MRI scanning done. And when he was 16, this picked up uh, cervical cervix and a carry one malformation, but no neurosurgical treatment was required for the second person to get a KRI1 malformation was a female patient, again, diagnosed by high-risk screen and who had a very stable clinical course in her childhood, although she did develop epilepsy age 11. There is a family history of juvenile myoclonic epilepsy in her family also. This girl actually presented symptomatically with headache and was found to have ventricular megaly in a KRI1 malformation when she was 14. She actually required an endoscopic third uh, ventriculostomy, but has since doing well. We also had patients develop epilepsy in their teenage years. And finally, we had a girl who was six years old. She had presented clinically with GA1 and a quite significant physical disability. So therefore was just on carnitine supplementation and no other dietary modification due to parent preference. This girl presented with acute thalamic stroke when she was six years of age. So that's really the summary of of some of our events that we found in our population. Asking 
ourselves. Can we for sure say that all of this is due to GA1? Is that causative? We can't. But all we know is that all of these phenomena were, were neurologic. As we know, GA1 is a neurotoxic disease. So that's kind of what we feel strengthens the, the philosophy in this unit anyway, that patients should remain uh, on the treatment for life. But perhaps Prof Monavari has more to say about that. At the beginning, we didn't have guidelines for the GA1. We, we started and we, we changed it depending on what's the outcome. And now with the guidelines, we are actually following it. And as we were before, even it was available. So at the moment, the diet is we give the carnitine, we give the low tryptophan, enhance arginine and free of lysine and also some natural protein. But as at the moment, there is no also genetic therapy. There is no enzymatic replacement therapy. Not any of them is available yet. So diet is the main management and we, we believe it has to be for life. Thank you, Prof. We would like to thank all of the patients and families involved, the staff at the National Centre for Inherited Metabolic Disorders, and the GIMD for allowing us this opportunity to speak about our study.